Now they're making Ghostbusters with only women. What's going on? Shut up and sit down. We will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on Earth. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. Read my lips. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Ah! I love the poorly educated. We're the smartest people. We're the most loyal people. Nobody intro this week. It's podcast day. I'm very <laughs> happy about it. There's a lot of shit to talk about. <laughs> Welcome back, guys. It's Barstool Politics. Uh, your host, me, Nick McGuire, uh, joined as always by Dr. Bill Muck uh, from North Central College, Dr. Phil Barker from Keene State College, and it's that time of the month, and we have Professor Tom Cavanaugh in with us as well. Great to be back as always. I didn't mean that pun <laughs> until it was flying out of my mouth. So there's that. Yay. Um, yeah, shameless plugs before we start, because I forgot them last week. Uh, if you like the podcast uh, or want to share it with people or have comments or suggestions or anything... Follow us on Facebook uh, at Barstool Politics, Twitter at Barstool Paul, P-O-L. Beers that we try you can find on the Untapped app on iOS and Android. The podcast you can find on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, um, pretty much anywhere that you can find a podcast. And then most people are listening on iTunes, so like us and review us and share us on iTunes because that's super nice. <laughs> right? Well done, Nick. Well done. I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm getting you faster. Got the, right? Yeah, exactly. Just going to keep going. Um, it's it's redundant to say this was a crazy week. We're going to talk about a bunch of stuff. Roseanne, North Korea, um, an attack on a piece of art for some reason. Those Russians are insane. Uh, but we've got Tom here, so let's let's start with with SCOTUS. This is we're getting into some important stuff. It's the summer. Exactly. It's, it's, it's Supreme Court week on the week on the podcast. Yeah. So this is like being on Oprah when she's giving away the cars when you know Tom's here. So <laughs> wow, <laughs> yes, that's, that's a high bar. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So this year's docket includes a lot of cases with some interesting questions. What we're going to grapple with today, do the police have the right to walk up my driveway without a warrant and search the suspicious-looking vehicle I have parked near my house? No, it's home base. Oh, okay. Can a business prohibit its workers from banding together in disputes over pay and working conditions? They wouldn't allow that in Sweden. And my favorite, can my defense attorney publicly announce my guilt to a jury over my clear objections and claims that I most certainly did not stab that guy in the face? Uh, we're lucky to have our senior legal analyst, Tom Cavanaugh, here to break all this down for us. Um, some epic decisions, Tom. Wow. <laughs> he, starts, he starts with a pun. So, so we're, we're, where do you want to start? Walk us through this. I want to start with who's the junior legal analyst if I'm the senior legal analyst. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> Since we can afford a junior one, we'll get on. That's right. <laughs> well, I thought to start with what they didn't do uh, as a sort of appetite wetter for maybe a month from now. Uh, none of the big five cases came down. And in my judgment, the big five of the uh, year are Masterpiece, the Do You Have to Bake a Cake uh, case, Janus, which is the public sector union case, uh, Gill, which is the gerrymandering case, Carpenter, the cell phone uh, location case, and Wayfair, which is a little bit below the radar, but a really important one, uh, in which the court's going to talk about whether or not internet companies are required to collect sales tax uh, on sales throughout the country. And uh, boy, uh, if they are, it is a massive change in the way um, the internet works. While the big companies do it, 
Very few small ones do, and there are thousands of taxing uh, bodies. So this has been an unusual year. They've been uh, historically slow uh, rendering decisions. Their decisions, when rendered, have been historically short mm -hmm. uh, this year. They've been very slow on CERT grants for next year, which is also happening at this point. They've even been slow on relist, uh, which is reconsidering cases when a justice thinks maybe at conference uh, he or she could talk somebody into hearing a case that they uh, may have said no to in the past. And there's been an awful lot of speculation about why. And one of the things we might talk about when we get to Epic is that it demonstrates a um, some fundamental disagreements between uh, at least Justices Gorsuch and uh, Ginsburg. So that might be interesting. Uh, they've granted cert in 19 cases so far for 2018. That's not very many. No blockbusters yet, but some really interesting ones. Uh, I, I'm looking forward to the time when we talk about the death penalty case, which asks the very simple question, can we execute you if you don't remember what you did? Uh, it's a really fascinating case. Here's a guy that is clearly, and by everybody's understanding, unable to remember anything about the crime he did and uh, was for, uh, for which he was convicted. Now we're going to ask, can we execute him anyway? Um, so some really interesting ones. The one that did not get taken that we uh, made brief allusion to is the Planned Parenthood versus Arkansas case. This has been on everybody's mind uh, really for a couple months. It's been relisted several times. And it basically asks whether or not Planned Parenthood, which cannot reach an agreement with a physician, uh, could continue to give medicated abortion pills. So Arkansas passes a statute. It was clearly intended to reduce the number of abortions that are done in the state, uh, and in particular medicated uh, abortions as opposed to surgical ones. Uh, and the statute says that you have to, if you're going to do this, have an agreement with a doctor who will have emergency service uh, uh, availability and admitting privileges in a hospital. Uh, Planned Parenthood has not been able to identify a doctor with whom they can work, uh, and they say this would reduce availability to a single provider in the state. The Eighth Circuit, which is the federal circuit there, said, well, uh, okay, but we want hard statistical evidence that there are actually women who'd be affected by uh, this statute. It's a really interesting case because hmm. Planned Parenthood says that what the Eighth Circuit has said is completely inconsistent with um, Roe versus Wade and all the cases that followed. So it was a big surprise that the court didn't take it. Did, did people uh, think the court was going to take it up? I think most people did because this is, this is a trend in a number of states. And forget whether you're for or against yeah. uh, abortion or, or, or even abortion rights. Uh, states are nibbling at the edges of that right. And one of the ways they've done that has been to regulate the way doctors who provide it do so. So do they have to have admitting privileges? Do they have to have here an agreement with another doctor who could uh, render emergency services? Um, so I think a lot of people saw this as the case that uh, would give them a chance to answer the question of to what degree can states push back against Roe versus Wade? It's a really interesting question of federalism. It's sure. an interesting question of state statute versus federal common law. Uh, but they've said no, so they're not after it right now. So I, I know that the Supreme the Supreme Court's not at all political. <laughs> no. <laughs> is there is there a chance that it's unclear which way that decision would go, and that might be part of the reason why the Supreme Court isn't taking it up at this point? Because neither side is confident that hmm. um, they would... <clears throat> You know, that's that an interesting question. Um, uh, my inclination is to say no, because it only takes four of the nine to grant cert. Right. So because this is a court that's sort of four against four with Kennedy in the middle, uh, 
any four that thought they might have, maybe they think they can't get Kennedy. I suppose maybe that's what you're or, asking. Or they're just unsure which way he's going uh, to go. Which way so they're he's, reluctant which to way grant. He's gonna yeah. Go. yeah. Um, I, it's a possibility. Uh, I, this really appears to be a court that has some hostility on it right now, interestingly mm-hmm. enough. And we could talk about that when we transition into Epic. Um, I suspect the answer is that they think this is uh, the, the, the Eighth Amendment, I'm sorry, the Eighth Circuit's decision is an outlier. And if they're going to decide a case on state rights relative to abortion, I think they want a clean record um, and a full record. And there has been no underlying litigation here. Planned Parenthood filed, they lost, the Eighth Circuit affirmed. Um, So there's very little record on which the Supreme Court could operate. And if I had to guess, I think that's probably why they don't take this one but why they'll take another one in the, the, the not-too-distant future. But this is a big loss for Planned Parenthood, right? I mean, they they did yeah. they wanted this to be heard. They see it as an enormous loss. Yeah. That said, uh, they are the object of these statutes or these mm-hmm. kinds of statutes in other states. Uh, and uh, you watch the court dismiss a case this week because it was improvidently granted, which is yeah. to say uh, it turns out they can't decide it after all. Hmm. And I think what could have happened yeah. in this case is exactly the same thing, that there wasn't enough of an underlying record for them to make a judgment on the merits of the case. So I think Planned Parenthood will be back next uh, year. Uh, I think it'll be a similar kind of case. It may even be this one if it turns out the lower courts get a chance to work on it. But I thought it was mentioning yeah. uh, worth well, sure. mentioning because a lot of people were paying attention to it. Can we start? Phil lived in Louisiana for a while, so the McCoy case is, that's one that, to me, that this case even made it there was interesting. Now, this one was Mm -hmm. decided eight to one, right? Right. And who was the the dissenter? No, no, McCoy is six to three. I'm sorry. We'll get back to uh, Collins was eight to one. Mm -hmm. That's the curtilage case. Mm -hmm. That's right. Uh, This is is a six-three case. Ginsburg decided it. Alito dissented. uh, And as you might imagine, the conservative justices were on the end of, of three. McCoy is a harder case than people think it is. And, and I say that having done it in my classes a couple of different times. The bottom line question is, can an attorney representing a person, uh, in this case one who is charged with a triple murder and facing the death penalty, overrule his client's wishes and essentially concede, when I shouldn't say essentially, and concede guilt mm-hmm where the lawyer believes that might save the client's life in a death penalty case. Uh, So the lawyer here, English, replaces some public defenders uh, for McCoy. McCoy is a belligerent, very difficult client by everybody's estimation, so much so that the public defenders essentially said, we can't represent this Mm -hmm. guy. So his parents, McCoy's, end up hiring English. English interviews him as to this triple murder. It's alleged that he killed his estranged wife's son, mother, and father-in-law. The evidence is apparently overwhelming, says English, and and there's nothing in the record to suggest that it's not. So he says to his client, I want to admit guilt in the guilt phase of the trial so that when we get to the death penalty phase, it won't appear as though you're unremorseful Mm -hmm. and maybe we can save your life. McCoy says he's being framed. Um, And he says he's being framed in particular because he's uh, uh, made allegations that the police in Louisiana are corrupt. Well, English does it anyway. And uh, he does it notwithstanding the fact. And there is a fair amount of evidence that that is true. Uh, Well, well, that the the Louisiana, yes, there is. That's right. So maybe he's right about that. But um, uh, English goes ahead, says he's guilty. And then it turns out that McCoy, notwithstanding that, is still convicted of three counts of first-degree murder and sentenced oh, uh, to Jesus. death. 
So the question is a Sixth Amendment one. Does your right to counsel include your right uh, to direct your attorney relative to the handling of the case? And, and the court says, yes, that is in fact what the Sixth Amendment says. So they've ruled in favor of McCoy against English. I shouldn't say necessarily against English, against mm -hmm. Louisiana, which yeah. wanted to preserve the uh, death penalty uh, in this case. Um, this is a this is a tough one though because English everybody concedes was doing what he thought was right, and what he thought was the most provident legal judgment, and instead what we're saying is that McCoy, who's a belligerent uh, relative to English, uneducated uh, client, but no mental health issues, right? No I mean, mental health We're assuming issues. that he can no, make no, his no, own no. decisions. No, he's lucid. Yeah, uh, there's there's no allegation yeah. he can't understand uh, the case. The argument is he's not a lawyer and and here his lawyer sure. made a judgment on his behalf that he now disagrees with um, the court didn't seem to have much trouble with this even though it turns out to be the case that the dissenters there were three of them um, th they dissented on a technicality it was less about a big policy decision and more about uh, uh, some details um, uh, about the case I would say this there is case law that suggests that lawyers have the ability to operate in ways that are inconsistent with client wishes. Um, and they typically turn on the question of whether or not it's a strategy or a fundamental issue. Mm -hmm. And what the court said in this case is that the question of guilt or innocence is so fundamental to a person's defense that they're entitled to make their own judgment about what their lawyer says about it. For example, when a lawyer makes objections throughout a trial, uh, and a client says, stop doing that. Generally speaking, the courts will say a lawyer's got the right to make st strategic or tactical judgments about how to try a case. Uh, but here, uh, the judgment was this wasn't strategy or tactics. This was a fundamental issue relative to the case. Um, it, one, just one more yeah, interesting yeah, sure. thing, Phil, and then, uh, so, one uh, of the, <laughs> I'm sorry, oh my gosh, talking one of the really interesting things is that Alito uh, writes in this one that this is like a rare flowering thing that we'll never see again and rarely see in the future, and, and sort of the essence of his dissent was, well, you know, this is so rare, who cares? Oh, and okay. I'm thinking McCoy does. Is yeah, right, <laughs> absolutely. It's right. yeah. an interesting argument. I'm sorry, Phil. <laughs> no, no, that, so I mean, this seems. I guess I'm with you, Bill. It seems a little. I'm a, it seems pretty straightforward to me. Like I, um, I, I think the tendency is to assume when someone's on trial and they're a mean person that, uh, you know, they're an asshole, and so. It, but, but the whole point of the legal process is to protect. You know, you, we should assume, in fact, that he's tell like if you assume, in fact, that he's telling the truth, that he is framed. If you were in his shoes and you were framed. Um, you would want the right to be able, you want, don't want your lawyer determining things for you, right? Yeah, well, you, you stop short of a sentence that I think was an important one. The whole point of the legal system is to protect, and I, you, right. you sort of dot, 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 I yeah. didn't hear the rest of it, but uh, that's English's argument. My job is to protect my client from the needle, and he doesn't know how to do that, I do. And the chances but, that he gets it are magnified when we put him in charge of making judgments like this rather than me. Now, I'm, I'm with you. I agree with the way the court decided the case. But just to argue the other side for a minute, English knows more about it. And he's doing exactly what it is you said the system expects of the system. Protect this guy from the death penalty. But we can't always assume. I think in general, the lawyer probably is going to know better than the client. But we can't always assume that. And there might be a circumstance in which 
the lawyer makes a mistake or the lawyer has different motivations. And, and to me, it seems like given that potential, yeah, you always have to defer to the client's perspective. Well, the, the knowing better part, this is where the, the distinction you, mm. you made, Tom, about strategy versus fundamentals seems yes. to come mm -hmm. in because because knowing better about strategy is one thing. But if you tell me that the evidence is overwhelming and if you plead innocent, you're going to get convicted and be sentenced to death. Your job, it seems like your job as an attorney is to tell me that, but then mm -hmm. I get to decide whether that's the risk that right. I want to take or not. I right? completely that, agree. And yeah. I'm being the devil's advocate on the yeah. other side yeah. about protecting. But um, uh, tease this out a little further. This happens in plea bargains all the time. You know, somebody says to their client, and I think you're right, the client should decide, uh, uh, we're not going to win. And whether you think you've been framed or not, mm. uh, it's one thing to lose the case and spend five years in prison. It's another altogether to lose it. Um, Sure. And, and get the needle. Yeah. And and uh, I, the good thing about this is that there's nothing in the record that anybody thinks suggests that English acted in bad faith. Um, you know, we talk about whether the Louisiana police are corrupt, but but English here, the question isn't, did he do something in bad faith? The question is, does he have the right to do this on behalf of his client? And the court says that he does not. That's an interesting I, one. I love, I love cases like this yeah. in which mm. the the... Um, the person involved is sort of despicable. Right? Yeah, yeah. Yes, it makes it better. He's done something terrible, but the, at the core of it is this legal issue that doesn't matter how That's right. terrible of a person is. You know, whether you're a terrible person or not does not erode your rights, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, some, yeah. if you're convicted, your rights are eroded, obviously, but um, you're still entitled to the same rights of trial and presumption of innocence and all of that. Totally right. And the only reason I raise it is to suggest how difficult it was for English to work with his client. Right. Uh, and that does relate to uh, the judgment he made. In other words, if he'd had a very reasonable client, maybe one who committed a triple murder, but a very reasonable <laughs> right. triple murderer, uh, and it wasn't the case that it appeared as though uh, the client was just being belligerent for the, uh, the, the sake of being belligerent, uh, maybe the case, I don't think the decision would go differently, but maybe his decision about uh, admitting his guilt would have gone differently. differently. So the public defenders left the case. I'm assuming English is not a public defender, correct? English is not a public defender. So I, right. it seems odd that he McCoy's, wouldn't have just... McCoy's parents were paying him. Okay, but it seems odd that he wouldn't have just recused himself or left the client as opposed to thinking that he... It, the more you think about it, it just seems like he thought he knew better than his client, and that that's kind of the sticking point for me. It seems like there are a lot of yeah. ways that he could have... Yeah stuck to the the book and you know done what was asked of him instead mm -hmm. of having to go down this very philosophical kind of gray road and he chose the latter and it just doesn't well, triple murderers do sometimes the, well, that's they fine. take the philosophical road <laughs> that's, yes. but ironically you can argue that this is the best thing you could hope for from an attorney you know here's what he could have done you know you're right we'll do whatever you say mm -hmm. you know how long this trial is going to be two minutes yes. The evidence is absolutely overwhelming. You want to go to trial? Let's go. You mm. want to testify yourself? Terrific. Do that too. Mm. Uh, uh, knowing all along what's going to happen here. Um, it is much harder to get out of representation than uh, non-lawyers think that it is. Mm -hmm. uh, you need the judge's permission. And when trial is approaching, the judge is very unlikely to grant it because you might imagine that what defendants will do is consistently fire their lawyers sure. yeah. so that they never actually get to yes. the guilt sure. phase mm -hmm. of a trial. That's a Barker Fair strategy. Yeah. 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 It's a Barker move. Wow. How many are you on? 13, 14? 
so I, I haven't read the, the decision. I haven't read all that much about this case, but I assume the decision was just about whether or not he was entitled to a retrial. That's right. Um, but what, is there any discussion of, did English face any reprimand or any, no. I mean, did he face anything for having done That's this? If, if the decision is you don't have a right to do this and you've undermined your client, is he just, I mean, it seems like the, the happy ending is he did what he thinks is right. His client gets a retrial and he goes home and feels good about what he's done. But I, I, don't, I don't know. Does yeah, he well, I don't want to pick nits, but uh, uh, he didn't undermine his client in his judgment. What he did was what he thought was right and a thing that he thought advanced his client's mm -hmm. interests, which, given our rules of professional responsibility, made him a zealous advocate on behalf of his client. So uh, the point being, the court didn't decide that he violated his professional responsibility rules, only that mm -hmm. the Sixth Amendment says, as to these core issues, a client has the right to make his or her own judgments. So I'll, I'll, I'll nitpick back a little bit. <laughs> 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 because it seems like uh, it's possible to do what you think is right and also undermine right. your client. So if, if instead, of mm. think, instead of doing this because he wanted to save his client's life, if mm -hmm. he you know heard you know that he thought this person was an awful person and if released would do terrible harm to the world and so what yeah. he thinks is right mm -hmm. is to get his client sentenced to death so if he had done that he could do what he think is the thinks is the right thing to do and also undermine his client and that's that's where you get into the fuzzy gray area of yeah. how do you yeah, yeah. how do you draw a line or how do you separate what you think is right from yeah you know it's a great point. anyway that yeah. it, it's a hard line i'm, I'm is why I'm glad I don't have to do these sorts of things. That's right. Yeah. All I'd say is that the record has absolutely nothing in it that suggests English wasn't acting in the way he thought best represented his client. That's mm -hmm. what makes it a good case. We should jump to yeah. Epic because I know you said Epic is the one that you well, really. Why don't wanted... we stick with crimes though first? Okay. And then we can okay. go to Epic because the other really good one is the Collins case. Okay. So, so, this so one remind like, us this of Collins. Like yeah. even better. Mm -hmm. Collins is this wonderful case that invokes the Fourth Amendment. So uh, here's the facts. Two lawyers see a guy riding an orange and black Suzuki motorcycle 140 miles an hour. Two lawyers? <laughs> two, uh, I'm sorry, two police. Okay. Two police. <laughs> see, Phil's got me thinking about lawyers here. i got to defend <laughs> lawyers from this guy who thinks we're going to tank our client's interests. <laughs> anyway, they see this guy. Uh, they, they give chase. He gets away. It happens again a week later. Same motorcycle. Police see him. High-speed chase. He gets away. Well, it turns out that in trying to figure out where this guy is and who he is, they find pictures of the motorcycle on Facebook. They find them uh, of a house that they can identify, and they go to the house. They park in front of the house, and lo and behold, what's in the carport but what appears to be a motorcycle under a big white tarp. So the cop, instead of calling for a warrant or any of that sort of thing, simply walks up the driveway, picks up the tarp, sees the motorcycle, takes a photograph of it, runs the license plate, and finds out it's stolen. I'll cut to the chase. person in the house is subsequently arrested when he comes home for receiving stolen property. Uh, and his defense is that the police should not have entered, and here's this great new word, the curtilage <laughs> of this property. Uh, so what this case asks is, where does your right to privacy end? So everybody agrees that you've got it in your house. And with very few exceptions, the police cannot enter a private dwelling without a warrant. Uh, even if there's the expectation possibly, for example, that you might flush cocaine down mm -hmm. the toilet, uh, which came up in this case. Uh, they can't enter an attached garage, and they can't enter a separate but locked physical structure of a garage. Hmm. 
This, on the other hand, is a carport. Mm-hmm. So, so, the, <laughs> so the lesson the lesson already is lock your garage. <laughs> well, it's one of the lessons, absolutely. The tarp should have been in front of the garage. <laughs> yes. yes. Well, so uh, the holding, uh, and and this one is the eight to one. Uh, uh, Justice Sotomayor wrote it. She's rapidly becoming my favorite Supreme Court justice. Interesting, because she is absolutely the Fourth Amendment. Uh, a defender on this court. Uh, every chance she's had, she's either written for or uh, voted with those that support the fourth. Uh, the ruling in this case is that the police should have had a warrant, that the curtilage of your house is a thing in which you have an expectation of privacy, and that without a warrant they shouldn't have entered it unless there was a plausible reason, uh, i.e. one consistent with the usual mm-hmm. uh, exceptions to the Fourth Amendment. Um, there is a dissent it's Alito again. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Alito's analysis here is: I'm going to just say, um, how do I how do I put this without sounding insulting? Uh, it, it is not good thinking, I think, <laughs> uh, because here's what it boils down to. Well, they could have looked at this motorcycle if it was parked on the curb. So why can't they walk up the 30 foot driveway and look at it in the carport? But that's a totally different situation, right? That's the point. Yeah, I mean, if, so if it's in the garage, if it's in the house, I mean, that's it's. Uh, but that's, I, I mean, that's it, it. Does raise an interesting question: Where on the property does that point begin? Is yeah. it the carport? Is it right at the curb? Is it on the sidewalk? Is you're going up to the house? Like, where is sure. that point? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, it ends where the curtilage ends. <laughs> okay, <laughs> and and the curtilage is that uh, space closely associated with your home. Uh, or, or your dwelling place. So mm-hmm. uh, let's say that they'd pulled the uh, uh, motorcycle not on the curb, but six inches into the driveway and parked it across the bottom. Mm-hmm. Uh, and let's then assume that the guy stands next to it and makes faces at the police and says, there's a tarp over this thing <laughs> and it's on my property. You can't see it. I suspect the answer from the court would be that that close to the curb isn't the curtilage. But here he's pulled it into a carport. He's put a tarp over yeah. it which conveys his expectation that it's somewhere he's entitled to put it and uh, not hide it, but uh, at least obscure it. Um, And Justice Sotomayor says, among other things, listen, uh, we've got to protect the rights of a person who can't afford a garage. And she's absolutely right, you know, because, listen, if Hmm. if he pulled it into a garage that had glass windows across the front of it, and the police walk up and flashlight through the window and then find the door open and do the same thing, we'd never hear about the case. It would be so obvious an outcome that they needed a warrant to do that, there wouldn't even be a conversation. That's fascinating. So why would it be that a carport, which is an attached but not enclosed portion of the home, the curtilage, isn't protected? (laughs) Which gets to this whole economic argument, who can afford, oh, that's that's fascinating. Mm -hmm. Alito says that everybody who reads this is going to say, uh, the law is an ass, to draw on that great <laughs> uh, literary <laughs> reference. And uh, I hesitate to say it, my respect for the court being as deep as it is, but uh, I- I'm not so sure he's not the ass yeah. in this case. Sure. To liken pulling a tarp off of a thing in a carport 30 feet from the curb to parking it on a public street in front of the house just doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. This is another example of where it's easy to not feel sorry for the guy, right? Yeah. Who's stolen a motorcycle <laughs> yes. and has fled the police multiple times. But if you think about it in just strictly in, in simple law enforcement, if you assume he's innocent, the, there's no, I, I don't know. The thing I come back around to is there's no reason why they couldn't have gotten a warrant, right? There was nothing pressing. That's exactly Nobody's life right. was imminently yes. Yes. in danger. That's exactly right. Like, 
they had all that they needed for a warrant. They have the evidence from Facebook showing exactly. the house and the motorcycle. <laughs> just do what, what you have to do. Just do That's the steps. Right. Yeah. That's right. Do your homework. And, and even if, let's say you go to a judge and he says, well, listen, uh, yes, you got the Facebook picture. Yes, you think it looks similar. I'm not giving a warrant. Park in front of the house. Mm-hmm. Or watch yeah. that, which is exactly, it turns out, what the police did. Collins wasn't home after they did the whole search. So the cop goes back into his car with his cell phone with a picture on it and waits for him to come home. Then goes back up to the front door and says, I think you stole the motorcycle. You're under arrest. You know, so it wasn't as though the motorcycle could make a big getaway. And, and the legal question in the case is, does the automobile exception apply here? Uh, for all of you guys that might be driving on the highway, I just want you to know that your car is an exception to the Fourth Amendment. <laughs> when it is readily mobile and there is a probable cause that a crime has committed in it. They don't need a warrant to search your car. Do they have to see so what's going on in your car? I mean, do they have to look through a window to have probable cause? or uh, When you're readily mobile, they can look through the window of your car. But what about a trunk? Uh, if there's probable cause they can... to suggest that you have committed a crime, uh, yes. They wouldn't have to see anything. places that are anything. not in plain view, sure. the automobile exception applies. Hmm. But again, in some ways it's sort of ludicrous to say that this is akin to a car pulled over on the side of the road uh, that right. could instantly drive away and start a, you know, a high-speed chase or something like this. It's parked it under a tarp. Mm-hmm. They could have gotten a warrant, but just didn't bother. Sure, sure. Uh, so it's a big deal, and, and in the, <coughs> at least in the sense that the Fourth Amendment gets another push in the right direction, I think. Mm-hmm. So, That's so now maybe we turn to Epic. Let's go yeah, right? Epic. All right, so on. summarize Epic for us. This is a good one. Uh, yeah, Epic's a civil case. Uh, as opposed to a crime, it's probably the biggest ticket uh, of all of these decisions because this one's going to affect tens of millions of employees. The essence of Epic is, and it's three consolidated cases, Epic's one of them, but the essence is, can an employer, uh, as a condition of employment, ask an employee to sign an arbitration agreement that waives your right to trial, and that also waives your right to concerted activity or a class action lawsuit? The background facts are that in each of these cases, there are uh, employees at Epic and uh, Ernst and Young is another of the uh, parties who got shorted on wages, but they were shorted amounts that would never attract a lawyer to an individual case. This is what class actions were designed to do. But they'd all signed oh, up. Oh, this is, I, I didn't know that. Be angry. To it. Uh, and boy, are we going to be on the opposite sides of this one. This is, this is totally the right decision. You guys are all wrong, I can tell already. Uh, anyway, I'll just finish with the facts. So um, they've all signed these arbitration agreements. They've waived those rights. They try to file a class action lawsuit. It is, as you might imagine, dismissed on the grounds that the arbitration agreement is binding. Uh, and the question is whether or not these contracts are enforceable. The court held that they are. Uh, and that's a very big deal. There's something like 55% of all uh, non-union laborers have signed uh, employment agreements with arbitration agreements. 55% and, uh, of non-union, non-union laborers or employees. That's, I shouldn't even call these. These aren't laborers. This so this account. is common mm-hmm. practice. It's very common practice. So the reason this got a lot of headlines was this is an enormous win for employers. Uh, because if you lost $1,000 or $500 in wages, a lawyer's never going to want a third of a $1,000 recovery. Right. Uh, but a lawyer would love the, th- uh, the, the hourly rate for a class action. You don't get a third of a class action. You sort of sure. make a case for your fees. Um, the, the more detailed question is that the Federal Arbitration Act says, unless there is a contract defense or some other federal statute in conflict, 
one should always enforce arbitration agreements. Right? Now, and, and, and one of the important things to say is the Federal Arbitration Act was passed in 1925. This is not a new statute. Mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. been around a very long time. And it's older than the one uh, that is the National Labor Relations Act with which it was argued that it conflicted. Mm-hmm. That is concerted activity sure. of workers. Could they band together right, and file right. a class action suit? So what's so interesting about the case is that Gorsuch treated it as, as a straightforward statutory interpretation. And I think he's exactly right. The FAA says honor these unless there's a good reason not to. There isn't a good reason not to. Uh, it does not conflict mm-hmm. on the face of the uh, Labor Relations Act. So enforce it. Ruth Ginsburg uh, uh, took a very strong position on the other side. Uh, she wore her dissent jabat, as you know. She's got uh, <laughs> RBG. This, the RBG. She had her dissent jabat on. Uh, she said Gorsuch was egregiously wrong. She likens these contracts to yellow dog contracts. You might remember from long ago, the agreement not to join the union at all. Um, And basically says, and and this is what's so interesting and what I'd love to hear from you guys on. uh, Gorsuch says this is Congress's job. They wrote the Federal Arbitration Act. They are not unaware of what it says, nor are they unaware of this controversy that has fairly recently erupted relative to it. If they want to fix the problem, they could do so tomorrow. Ginsburg says, well, Congress isn't fixing it, so I'm going to. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, workers are hurt by these contracts. They might be, they might not be. But Ginsburg says, if Congress won't do it, I will. And the reason I feel so strongly about this being the right way to decide the case is, that's not her job. A legal versus a political uh, decision. scrutinize the Constitution to find the place where it is that right. we gave Ruth Ginsburg the opportunity to amend federal statutory law mm. to say what she thinks it ought to say to protect workers. And shockingly enough, I haven't found that provision. Yet. <laughs> so, uh, you, you are obviously more well informed about the details of this case, but the, the, it seems to me that the Supreme Court is given the power to say Congress has done this wrong if something that Congress has done is in violation of basic rights of of people, right? I mean, that's that's part of the no. idea of constitutional review. Do it. Well, I, I guess I'd say uh, no. And, I mean, and this may be back to, you know, you and I picking nits with each other today. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, cons- the, the Supreme Court has the right to say that something has violated the Constitution. Right. That is. So if the Federal Arbitration Act is unconstitutional, they can tell Congress they did something wrong. That's not the issue in the case. The issue in this mm. case is workers are hurt by, and Gorsuch said it, that is, this might not be great policy, but the statute is clear, and the statute is constitutional. So if Congress wants to reform the FAA, they can do that. Uh, or if the court found grounds to say it is an unconstitutional statute, they can do that. But what they can't do is rewrite a statute where Congress's intent is clear. Mm-hmm. So my, my the thing that pops into my head is that I, I, don't, I don't know if this is true or not, but I've heard people say or i have read in the past that you know when you go in into i don't know when you when you sign up to go paragliding or whatever <laughs> you sign something that says that you you know you won't hold them liable for any injuries or whatever that in fact that that's not necessarily um that can't necessarily be upheld in a court of law if somebody is negligent and you sign something saying beforehand i won't hold you liable in the court of law you can't you can't sign away your 
rights, right? To some extent, is that true? Uh, you can sign away your rights. There are circumstances under which uh, contracts like that violate public policy. And uh, the example you give might be one of them. So for example, we don't generally enforce contracts where you uh, exculpate yourself from your own negligence. Imagine walking into an emergency room and having to sign a contract that says, if you harm me negligently while I'm in here, I agree right. not to sue you. Right. That violates public policy and we don't enforce it. That's different public policy violation than workers would do better if we didn't say to them, you have to, you know, these contracts are enforceable. Uh, workers could tomorrow lobby Congress to change the law. Mm -hmm. and, and I suspect there will be some effort to do that. And I know it sounds heartless to say, uh, you know, workers tough shit, you're, yeah. you know, you signed it, you're responsible for it. But if we don't say that, I just would invite all of you to think about what it will look like when the court does put itself in a position to rewrite statutes. If one of these justices retires, and I don't think they're going to because they usually would have in March so that there's a cycle to replace them, but assume for the moment Kennedy does retire and you get what would be a solid conservative court, which we don't have now, and they start rewriting things like the Miranda, well, Miranda's a common law right, but. Uh, they start rewriting federal statutes to conform with their sense of how things should work in the world. Um, I, I think you'd all be horrified. And I join you in being horrified by that. And I, I guess I just think Ginsburg is trying to find a way uh, to do what Congress didn't. And, and that is immensely worrisome to me. What was her legal I, argument for that? That the savings clause of the FAA, yeah. which is a provision that basically says if there's a federal statute with which this is in conflict... Uh, exists, the contract is unenforceable. Here's the problem with the argument, and mm -hmm. Gorsuch said it. Uh, class actions didn't exist when the FAA was written. Sure. Hmm. Uh, uh, in fact, uh, they didn't come along until much, much later as a matter of uh, civil procedure rules at the federal level. So there's no good way to read uh, the Labor Relations, I shouldn't say the Federal Arbitration Act, the Federal Labor Relations Act. Class actions didn't exist when it was written. They weren't they just simply didn't exist. So to try and read into an act that was written before a thing existed, that it now includes that thing, sure, uh, this just doesn't make sense. And the idea, the employee doesn't have a right to not sign that, to, to, to remove themselves from the arbitration clause, right? So if, if the corporation is doing this, they say, here's the contract, you sign it. They don't give them an out. They don't, there's not an option to not the, sign the, that, is there? The out is to not take the job. Well, that's what, exactly, <laughs> right? Yeah, that's, that's the reality, that you don't have the choice of not signing that particular... That's right. Okay. That's right. I don't know. I, I, and again, I know I'm a heartless. Uh, uh, Ginsburg even says we're going back to the Lochner era. Uh, and frankly, I'd love to go back to the Lochner era, which is that one where people could sign contracts for themselves. Sure. Mm -hmm. I, I think your point is, total, is, is totally valid. I mean, we've talked about it on this podcast about how, you know, when Barack Obama is in office, people want to give him all of these executive powers. But anything you yeah. give to the president is then, you know, so, so the right, idea right. of, of Ginsburg being able to do this if you're comfortable with that, you have to be comfortable with a conservative controlled mm -hmm. court yes. also being able to do that. Right. And, and that, I, yeah. so I, I, this is my other sort of, I, my legal knowledge is limited. And so you can tell me how I'm wrong, but <laughs> is there also with a, with a contract to some extent, there has to be, so, 
in my mind, you can get out of, and this is where my, my experience is mostly with international law, so I think of treaties. <laughs> yes. But with, with treaties, for instance. Anyway, with contracts, if you don't understand what you're signing, does that limit the legal, does that limit the ability of that, of you? Does that limit your ability to be bound by that contract if, if you are unclear of what you're signing? And so does that come into play here and that yeah. someone has been offered a job, here's this big chunk of paperwork, sign off on it, yeah. and and they're not necessarily aware of the rights they're giving up? Would that play out here? The, the short answer is no, uh, and, and there's two reasons. The first is there's a thing in law called an adhesion contract, and it is a contract about which there is no negotiation. It's filled with boilerplate. So. When you got a cell phone or a checking account, you signed an adhesion contract. It's take it or leave it. The law absolutely enforces adhesion contracts unless there is a valid contract defense like coercion or duress or lack of capacity, which is the other half of the answer to your question. Uh, to demonstrate that you didn't understand something, you're going to have to demonstrate, first of all, it's a very high bar. So you're going to have to show that you were completely incapacitated. And uh, for a worker to say, I didn't understand when I read or chose not to read uh, the appointment letter or the uh, employment agreement that I was signing, there's not a court in the world that, uh, that's going to say you lack capacity. Hmm. It's just not going to happen. Yeah. It's an interesting, it goes in, in yeah. some weird way, it goes back to this, uh, the previous case we talked about in which there's this idea of you know, people who can't afford a garage also are entitled to rights. And this in some ways is that, right? Like if you're an hourly worker and you're given a contract, if if you make, you know, a million dollars a year, you're going to have a lawyer look who at the contract yes, that you right. sign before you take a job. But but the average worker can't afford to hire a lawyer to look through this. And here's the problem. That they even understand if, the even if they did hire a lawyer, here's what the lawyer would say. You're signing a contract with an arbitration provision. Uh, I'd advise you to sign it if you want to take the job because there's no obligation for them to take it out. Uh, I, I agree with mm -hmm. you that, that we should defend rights, but there's no right to a job. There's a right to be yeah. protected by the Fourth Amendment. Mm -hmm. This this might be. No, I sound very harsh today. No, no, no. I mean, first of all, I'm talking too much, and second of all, I sound very harsh. It feels like a sound legal opinion that's going to have some potentially very negative. I'm sorry, legal opinion that have negative political costs, right? Especially for those at the lower end I think that's of the right. spectrum. Mm -hmm. All right, Nick, we should but, talk but, beers. But, uh, I just, <laughs> no, one no, more. Yeah, quick, this yeah. all assumes that arbitration's a bad thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, uh, probably it's going to be difficult to do these individual arbitrations, but you're not obligated to have a lawyer when you're in one. Mm -hmm. So they weren't told they can't do anything. They were told they can't have a class action. Yeah. And that's different than saying you've lost the opportunity to have any remedy at all. Sure. Mm -hmm. There is leverage in the class action versus the Huge, arbitration. Yes. Hugely yeah. more. Okay. Yeah. yeah. This, is, this is back to where, like, I... <laughs> I think it's easy to like it's easy to vilify the motorcycle thief or the guy who stabs you in the face. And for me it's like harder to feel sorry for the corporation yes. who's yeah. fucking over their employees by taking out by not paying them as much yes. as they're supposed to get paid. Anyway. Oh this is gonna that's be an excellent one. transition yeah. to beer right there. Yes. I always feel like I learned something. I don't want to cut these off. <laughs> that's right. Phil, what are you drinking? I am drinking um Wait a minute, rotating India Pale Ale from Hineker Brewing Company. Hineker's just down the road here in New Hampshire. Um, and from what I've read about this this beer, the fact that it's a rotating India Pale Ale means that it's not always the same, that depending on sort of what hops are in season and what they, that, that the beer itself changes somewhat. 
I really liked this. Um, I, I like IPAs, um, but sometimes they are a little too in your face, like a little too bitter and too, and this was just, it was really good. It had the hoppy flavor, but it was refreshing. It was, it, it was, I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Ooh, sounds like a good one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Nick, you want to describe our first beer that we've shared? <laughs> sure. <laughs> I passed that one to you. I know you did. <laughs> first one we had was, uh, if you're not into yoga, which is a white stout with coconut and pineapple, yeah. you know, from the Pina Colada song, because yes. that's the lyric, <laughs> from uh, Illuminated Brew Works, which is out of Chicago, so local guys. Um I, I liked it. It's very summery. I feel like if it was colder, if it was really, really cold, it would be good. Um, yeah, very heavy pineapple, coconut. I didn't get a lot of the orange that they said in there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, overall, I, it, it was good. Like I said, if it was cold, it would be really good. Yeah. It's, tell, it's tell hot you, in this room. Yeah, it, does, it does feel like a good summer beer. Yeah. yeah. Really cold on the beach. Yep. Right out of the cooler. Uh, that would have been The great. coconut was really strong for me. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, it is. It, yes, it, it says is. it's a perfect. So the pineapple. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's a perfect, uh, you know, if you like making love in the dunes uh, of the Cape or really anywhere else for that matter. <laughs> so bring it along. <laughs> bring a really good cooler with you when you do that. So our second. So, go they're, ahead. they're making the claim that if you like sex, you'll like this beer. Yeah, man. That's a great, yeah. great a mantra. Yes. Yeah, go buy it. Our second one is a is from Hoppin' Frog out of Ohio. It is an old school Baltic porter uh, ale brewed with black pepper. So, Tom, you're the the Baltic porter specialist here. So, what was your sense of this one? Uh, good. Yeah, I'm not going to go great. Okay. Uh, very heavy. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the black pepper I think doesn't add to. Mm-hmm. Uh, the flavor it makes it sharper rather Agreed. than yeah. uh, roasty. So um, I'm going to go with good. Why don't I <laughs> yeah. stop there? Yeah, <laughs> no, I, Nick, I don't know. I'm similar. I, it was okay. Yeah, it, not it fantastic. Was, it was fine. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah I, I would agree. It had a very, a very sharp taste to yeah. it, and I, I couldn't put my finger on it. It was, um, it was, it was a couple steps above a Guinness. <laughs> For, yeah. for me. Yeah. You definitely can get that pepperiness yeah. to it. Which yeah. I did not yeah. need. No, yeah. But above that. a Guinness in like a, you mean like better than? Better or like than. More powerful. Okay. Better than. Yeah. Maybe both too. There's more, there's high alcohol oh, content yeah. for those. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Guinness is light calories, light alcohol. Yeah. No, this yeah. is motor oil. This is, this is yeah. motor oil. Mm-hmm. Stick. Yeah. All right. Speed round. Hell yeah. All right. Let's talk Roseanne. Yes. Let's. <laughs> Please. And, and nobody could see this coming, right? Uh, <laughs> all right. <laughs> so ABC canceled uh, its hit sitcom uh, show Roseanne on Tuesday after the show's biggest star, Roseanne Barr, went on a bit of a racist Twitter rant. The show has become a hit uh, with fantastic ratings, but all that came crashing down on Tuesday when Roseanne posted a racist tweet about Valerie Jarrett, an African-American woman who was senior advisor to Barack Obama. She wrote, if, quote, the Muslim Brotherhood and Planet of the Apes had a baby equals VJ. Uh, Roseanne apologized later in the day, but by then ABC had publicly announced they were canceling the show. A lot to unpack here. In some ways, this is not all that surprising. Roseanne was a ticking time bomb, yet her controversial politics and connection to President Trump makes this another bizarre plot twist that is the story of American politics these days. In fact, earlier in the day, Donald Trump Jr. had retweeted two of Barr's tweets about George Soros. In one of the tweets, Barr uh, calls Soros a, quote, Nazi who turned his fellow Jews to be murdered in concentration camps. Don Jr. retweets this. And then 
later when I thought I gotta get a, I gotta screenshot this, I thought, well, I'm sure maybe he's... he thought, guys, you gotta check out this shit. Yeah, this I, I thought he would have deleted it after all of this, and he left it up there. But no. Uh, so Phil, I know you were a big fan of the show. So <laughs> how are you feeling, and what do you make of all of these developments? <laughs> I'm real down. Bill. You're real down. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I. I mean, there's lots of ways to go with this, one of which is the the debate about whether this is racist or not, which I find kind of, I mean, we could debate that, but I, I find that a little ridiculous. Like uh, the idea of comparing African-Americans to apes is like the classic um, racist thing. I, I don't I don't feel bad for Roseanne at all. I don't really feel all that bad for ABC, right? This is yeah, not a right. new thing that has developed. When they signed Roseanne up, for a reboot, she had already revealed these tendencies, and so, <laughs> yes, yes. Um, which is why, to mm-hmm. me, this is uh, this is yes, it's about her tweets, but it's also about business, yes, <laughs> and, and right. that ratings were huge at the beginning, but they've been declining, and ABC is this huge corporation that is facing probably you know you know widespread protests or boycotts or whatever based on this. And it's easier to cancel her show than to deal with this. So I I don't know. I think ABC has gotten a lot of praise for for dropping the axe here. And I I don't know that they're necessarily all that praiseworthy in this in this situation. They they did for the bottom line. Right. Right. The thing that that stood stands out to me in all of this and the articles that I've read is that Roseanne Barr is is she is. I don't know, the kind of perfect Donald Trump supporter, like the way that she like she's tweeted these things. I guess that it has been made clear to her in the past that this is going to cost you. You're going to lose your show if you keep doing this. She even turned her Twitter over to her kids at one point, but she just can't resist, right? <laughs> she just has to come back to Twitter to say stuff. And and the like parallels to Donald Trump are really kind of remarkable, right? All of these people around her saying, hey, you probably shouldn't say that sort of thing. And she just can't <laughs> yes. resist doing it anyway. She even quit. She said it yesterday. I'm quitting Twitter. And then as of like last night, she was You couldn't retweeting. have done that 24 hours before, you yeah. moron. No. Yeah. I just... I, like this is a thing and I've said it over and over again social media is the bane of modern <laughs> existence just don't be on there like realistically like you said ABC knew she was this person most people knew she was this person she has like just don't don't put it out there publicly my big thing about this is going along with what you said Phil ABC knew exactly what they were getting into, yes. and they were looking for any excuse whatsoever to put this in the ground if this was not going to continue being a ratings juggernaut, which realistically, it was still getting better ratings than 90% of the shows right. on ABC. It had already been renewed for a second season. Right, after one episode. <laughs> right. So you knew, you knew exactly what this was. Yeah. On top of this, you have an entire cast and crew of people that because of what she said in one tweet, you now put them out of a job, regardless of, you know, the bullshit statements that someone were making. Well, I was already going to quit. Like, I, you know, I'm just glad that this happened. You're full of shit. <laughs> you're on the highest rated show on network television and you're going to quit. You're yeah. just an idiot. Uh, the other thing about this is this I was a we talk TV and social media. <laughs> oh with Nick. This was a an honest to goodness representation of a demographic of the American population that you don't see on TV. What you see on network television especially, and just about any other portion of television, 
everybody is rich. Everybody has money. They apparently can afford apartments in midtown Manhattan and go work at like a marketing agency for like two hours a day and then go sit in a coffee shop. It's fucking bullshit. And on top, we're, we're in, you know, right outside of Chicago. This was based in Elgin. That's yeah. where the show is. Yeah. And there are a lot of people in that area that have this sort of you know, upper working class, lower middle class lifestyle that struggle and, you know, have these different complicated stories and you don't see those things. But the show couldn't go on without Roseanne, though, right? I, I think mean, that's it, the problem. Uh, that's, you know what? They made a concerted effort to put different storylines in there that were multifaceted and, you know, had different aspects than the original show had that spoke to different aspects of society than what you see on regular TV. I honestly think it could have gone on without Without Roseanne. It's this, you knew what you were getting into. And it was a blatant, I don't agree at all with what she said. I don't agree that the show should have been canceled at all. Should have been, she should have been fired. Maybe. 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 Yeah. I, mm. Yeah. I, mm, sometimes. Okay. This is going to go long because you guys oh. didn't talk. <laughs> what are you thinking? Roseanne's a troglodyte. Let's just start there. <laughs> but the second thing is that this is the second of two Twitter uh, outrages this week. The first of which was the former speechwriter for Obama uh, tweeting pictures that purported to be the mistreatment of immigrants, children primarily. Uh, and it turns out that they were, in fact, done while he was in the White House yeah. with the president. <laughs> so I'm with Nick. If you're smart, you stay off Twitter. Right. Yeah. Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, and all these other things. Mm-hmm. It, in some ways, I think Thank about you, this as Roseanne had the right to say what she wanted to say. She did so on this Twitter. This is not a First Amendment case. No, right? no, 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 no exactly. it's not. No, it's not. But then ABC has the right to fire her. Right. I mean, all of this, this play, I mean, it was, I don't think it's a tragedy at all. I think ABC should have seen this coming. I think you're right, Nick. But, you know, whatever. Roseanne said what she said. ABC, I'm sure they were prepared for this, right? They had a rubric for what, you know, oh, yeah. whatever she says, chart. it's going to be okay. Well, this She is... said something, arrow fired. Yep. And, and a lot of that, to Phil's point, is going to be connected to revenue sources. How far can she go? Because she has gone, she's pushed quite a bit. And in some ways, it's surprising that ABC didn't you know push back earlier so i don't know i'm I'm not losing any sleep over any of this no i i I agree with that it's i i wonder where the end point of this is where does it if there's another situation which is less caustic than this in the future if somebody says something on twitter that does not i i don't know uh, appeal to the mm, moral sensibilities of the network that they're involved in is it that much of a knee-jerk reaction consistently? Because I, I mean, I think it's but this wasn't moral. This was this was it, financial, right? I mean, what this do you mean? was but, ABC. But also, yeah. Also, she she didn't say I don't like Barack Obama. She she compared an African American to. Oh an no, ape, right? I agree. I mean, yeah. No, I'm not saying that what she said wasn't reprehensible because it absolutely was. And she's an unfunny asshole. Let's right. just put that on <laughs> the mean, table. And said George Soros is a Nazi, right? A Jewish American. I mean, that's, these things are terrible. Right. All right yeah. But so let's throw this out on the table. A few years ago, Bill Maher goes on the Jay Leno show and says uh, Donald Trump's uh, father is an orangutan who had sex with his mother. Mm-hmm. producing what could only be uh, the spawn of an orangutan. Uh, ha, 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 says the world, and uh, that's the end of it. Right. Uh, I mean, I'm not one who's constantly after the, if one side sure. does it, the other side should or shouldn't. But it is interesting to think about, uh, is this just always about whose ox has been gored? 
Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, Bill, Bill Maher is a terrible person. He is a terrible <laughs> he person. He is a terrible person. <laughs> right. And, and you'd think he'd put up or shut up because what he said in the bet was if Donald Trump proves he's not an orangutan, uh, I will pay $10 million to his charity. But Bill Maher, who's a terrible person, <laughs> yeah. when given the birth certificate uh, with Fred Trump's name yeah. on it, of course, doesn't come across with the cash. <laughs> right. So I, I know we're out of time, but I'll, I'll be a little... I, I don't, I, I, there's part of me that expects Roseanne to be picked up by somebody mm-hmm. because there there is a cost oh, yeah. to this, but she's also this is also was getting great ratings, and I think about like, the Last Man Standing, which was the yes uh, uh, Tim. Why can't I think of his name? Alan. Alan. Tim Allen show who, who was you know he his character was a conservative, and it got canceled, and there was all this out you know outcry, and Fox brought it back. Right, they canceled several other shows and brought it back. And so I, I don't, you know, I don't know that necessarily one of the major networks will pick it up, but I wouldn't be surprised to see it resurface somewhere. I could see that. I, it, it's, it'll take a solid month for this to, to die down, and then I'm sure so, there will, will be some negotiation somewhere. Yeah, but what advertiser is going to be associated with her after this? I, I mean, it'll be behind a paywall somewhere. Are. It'll be an online platform uh, or something like that. And I, I go. would guarantee you see some sort of. Mm, right-leaning, mildly conservative online platform that is behind a paywall start to spring up in the next few months. Yeah. I would guarantee it. She's going to start a podcast. That's what's, Everybody's doing podcasts. Oh, God, I would listen to that every single day. More than ours. All right, Nick. North Korea. Okay. <laughs> so over the last week, U.S.-North Korean summit has been an emotional roller coaster. Late last week, Trump sent North Korea a letter in which he said... The tremendous anger and open hostility expressed by the Kim regime forced the U.S. to cancel the meeting. Yet by the next day, Trump was once again talking about the meeting being back on. The letter itself read like a love letter between Trump and Kim Jong-un. Trump stated he felt, quote, a wonderful dialogue building between you and me, and that he, quote, looked very much forward to meeting you. Trump closed (laughs) closed with thanking Kim Jong-un for releasing the hostages, which, quote, was a beautiful gesture and was very much appreciated. (laughs) Where are we heading with this? Diplomacy is good, but I can't make any sense of this. Phil, talk to me. You're, you study international <laughs> politics. I'm, I'm like giving up. You just throw these to Phil. <laughs> I know. It's the yeah. best. <laughs> I, so I, from, I get motorcyclists <laughs> stabbing, uh, stabbing people in the face. Yes. Uh, Phil gets uh, Kim Jong-un. Triple and, murderers. Yes. And Phil gets Roseanne and uh, this. Oh. Um, I, so, yeah, I mean, if I put on my sort of foreign policy hat here, I... The, it, this is just insane. <laughs> it's disconcerting. Um, I mean, so what I, the the letter is what I come back to, right? The the Trump yes. canceling the summit and the letter that he wrote is just all kinds of bizarre. I think it, it this is an example of we've talked a lot about in this podcast about adapting or, or adjusting or becoming used to the Trump presidency. Prison. And I think yeah. this is probably an example of it in which you read that letter and it just sounds like Donald Trump. But if you look at that or put it in the context of international diplomacy, that letter is crazy. I mean, it is it is um, to, to the you know, to begin with the, the sort of super deferential to, re, you know, re- reference him by all his official titles and to thank him. But at the same time, to throw these Twitter like jabs into it, it, there's nothing in that letter that isn't personal. There's nothing in there that is about U.S. interests, about North Korea interests. It is about Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un and taking shots at each other. And it, it's just it's just strange. And then for to issue that letter and then for reports to come out that the summit is still being prepared and is going to happen. And I, I don't 
I, I mean, I just, I think the best thing to do is not to ignore any news about North Korea, but to ignore anything coming out of the Trump administration about North Korea. Hmm. I found myself thinking about the Khrushchev-Kennedy letters that went back and forth during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Mm -hmm. And I actually, this week, I went back and reread some of those. Khrushchev was a poet. He was thoughtful. I mean, it was it was really capturing the way in which the broader systemic pressures of his of his government was pushing both Kennedy and Khrushchev to make these hard decisions. And I I was awed. And then I read Trump's letter, and I thought, oh, this is this is this is stupidville. But you know, these it, are I mean, these are not poets. And realistically, I in this particular situation, I think this was the right tactic. <laughs> like you're you're talking about a regime that is based around one man. Regardless of what the apparatus is around him that's going sure. to make the bureaucratic decisions, this is trying to appeal to one man to meet with you about sure. something that is fundamentally very important for geopolitical relations. That's a good point. That is true. On yes. top yeah. of that, after the, the letter and whatever, North and South Korea had an emergency meeting to figure out how to meet with Trump. <laughs> because of the crazy letter. Right. <laughs> yes. That was it. <laughs> They're going to have this meeting even after this, Do, which was the point. Because I'm, of this. Because of this. Potentially because of this. It begs the question whether Trump intended for that to happen. If he, if he didn't, then it was fortuitous. Sure. If he did, then he's a genius. <laughs> I, he's not a genius. <laughs> I, I, I'll, I'll put an asterisk in well, there. Well, he doesn't have to be a genius. I, I, he thinks about this differently, right? Right. You, you international guys who, who worship at the altar of diplomacy, which is all about building relationships, think differently than a guy who worships at the altar of negotiation, which is all about building deals. And I don't think this guy cares whether people like him or not, including Kim. I don't think he cares whether or not he looks crazy or not. I think like a real estate developer, he says, if I got a deal at the end of the day, and I do, and if I have a private jet at the end of the day, and he does, and if I win, and he has largely, I realize that's yeah. it, right. That's what I'm about. And uh, this is an interesting shift, right? That we're not after diplomacy here. I, I think if you said, Donald, are you a, uh, you might not know the word, but Donald, are you a diplomat? Uh, <laughs> or do you believe in diplomacy? He'd probably say, no, I believe in getting a deal done. Mm -hmm. And so we've I, never had a president who said that before. Mm -hmm. I I want to push back a little bit because I think that Are you picking nits with me? Is that <laughs> yeah, what it is? Yeah. <laughs> There's your episode title. Have, you know, I hear I hear this the sort of claim that, you know, he thinks differently and that allows him to get stuff done. And I, I don't I don't want to say that that is in and of itself bad, but Donald Trump's view of negotiating is different than the normal person's view of negotiating a business deal hmm. because Donald Trump has a long history of basically being able to essentially just get his way right he's he's wealthy he's powerful and and I know that we like to think that the US is in that role but when it comes to international relations we're not like we at some point we can't just you know with sovereignty at play and and you know foreign countries we we don't have the ability just to steamroll other people with our lawyers and our now, Without money. disagreeing with that, I mm -hmm. would say, though, uh, I, I think the way he thinks about negotiation is very much representative of the way lawyers and business people do. And, yep. and, and so the interesting question is, four years from now, 
will he have gotten anything done? I, and I'm not arguing he ha is or has. I, I guess I'm just saying he, to he has a totally different approach to this. That's, that's mm -hmm. an important point. I, I'm not sure that he will. I'm afraid that he's going to be taken advantage of. But I think you're right. It's a, it's a novel way to approach mm -hmm. these negotiations. I, I feel like China's kind of taking advantage of him. I'm curious to see what ultimately gets done with North Korea. Mm -hmm. It could work. My guess is it's not going to work, but but we will see. And then if he, mm -hmm. you know, Nobel Prize, right? If he if he gets <laughs> it, it's Phil, you're on board, right? It's good. My, yeah, of course. Yeah. My my problem with you know, Nick, you were saying that this and and Tom too that like walking away might have been the right. Thing. I don't necessarily have a problem with walking away, mm -hmm. but there's a way to to essentially say to North Korea, if you're not going to cooperate, we're, we're out. Mm -hmm. um, that's this different than sending a letter in which you talk about how our nuclear weapons are so much bigger than yours, and <laughs> yes. God forbid we ever have Hilarious. to use Yeah, but it. look, Donald Trump is great in a new car, a new car sales room, right? <laughs> he knows he's going to have to walk away. He knows yep. the sales manager's coming out. It's all a big dance. And, and the problem is the dance he doesn't want to do is the, the UN diplomacy dance. The dance he wants to do is, I'm going to walk out. We're all going to pretend that uh, this is a big surprise, and you'll chase me out the door to sell me the new car, and I'll act like I'm going to go down the street to Nissan and buy one from them instead. Mm -hmm. So we'll see. You and, know, I don't know. If Donald Trump were negotiating a new car deal for me, I'd be totally on board. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> totally on board. <laughs> oh, all right, we we got to move on. This is oh, so many good topics today. All right, next one, Nick. Um, George Costanza, <laughs> Jerry. Just remember, it's not a lie if you believe it. So on Saturday, Trump attacked the New York Times for citing a, a senior White House official who, quote, doesn't exist and admonished the newspaper for to use real people, not phony sources. It turned out the official in question had spoken at a White House briefing arranged by Trump's aides and attended by dozens of reporters and actually more than 50 over phone. He later uh, tweeted to pressure Democrats to end the horrible law that separates children from their parents once they cross the borders into the U.S. There's no such law. He then closed by tweeting, quote, who's going to give back the young and beautiful lives and others that have been devastated and destroyed by the phony Russia collusion witch hunt? Over the last few years, the media has been reluctant to use the word lie instead of re referencing Trump's untruths, exaggerations, de demonstrable falsehoods. When pushed on why they won't directly call Trump a liar, New York Time Times reporter Maggie Haberman responded by saying, quote, the reality is that what he thinks he uh, the reality is that what he does can hard can be hard to label because as anyone who has worked for him will tell you in candor he often thinks whatever he says is what's real that strikes me as an interesting intellectual question is trump a liar a fibber a fabricator delusional or just a con man and is it even important that we get the label right it seems like a very msnbc kind of a topic no, no, or, or like college <laughs> campus kind of conversation because I, so this week there were multiple stories attacking the new york times saying yeah. call him a liar call him a liar and then haberman pushed back saying Liar requires what did I say here? An intent to deceive. Well, I mean, we talked about it like when when um, we were reading um, or uh, reading um, Fire and Fury. Mm -hmm. The the quote was not the specific quote, but saying that when he won the election, as the results were coming in, he went ghost white and clearly did not think that that was going to happen. Yes. And then, as a few minutes went by he started talking about how he could be president, he should be president, and this was the right thing to happen. And he makes this reality around him, which I think is infinitely more likely than him just being a liar. He thinks what he's saying in some capacity 
is the truth because it's the reality that's created that he's created for himself. End of statement. <laughs> Period. Phil, liar, fibber, delusional. Man, so, man. I, <laughs> I, I think your question about does it matter which of these he is, I, I, yeah. I think it does matter. Mm-hmm. Um, it, 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 it's important to, you know, because I, I do think, you know, whether he's an intentionally deceiving people or whether he just lives in his own world in mm-hmm. which he believes you know, the Fox News stories and whatever he wants to believe. I, I think that does matter. I, I don't think it matters in terms of the answer to the question about whether he's, I was going to say fit to be president, right? <laughs> I mean, whether, so take away the fit part. It doesn't matter in the sense of whether or not I'm concerned about him as our president, mm-hmm. right? So whether he is intentionally being deceptive or whether he fully believes the things he's saying, if he is, for whatever reason, detached from facts and truth that concerns me that he is our president mm-hmm. so I, I do think it matters there is a difference between those things and i think it's important to distinguish between them but so back to the maggie haberman thing I, she makes a good point um about you know whether he believes it or not you know he's not necessarily a liar if he's not intentionally deceiving she's right on a technicality there but on the bigger issue of whether or not you know the the truth the bigger picture of facts and truth matters whether he is intentionally lying or not. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Tom, where do you fall in all this? Uh, I'm with Phil. Yeah. I can't even find a nit to pick at this point. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I like all that so much. It does matter if facts yeah. don't matter. It does matter if logic doesn't matter, whether you're negotiating or doing diplomacy. I, I'm, I'm totally with Phil on this. That That's a big <clears> deal. <throat> I'm also... Uh, We've talked about the degradation of political discourse in America. Mm-hmm. I worry about that. And I think we've talked about, at least times I've been here, uh, where's the press on all of this? And I'm worried about where the press is mm-hmm. on all of this. Mm-hmm. There, there is clearly uh, a resist movement in the press. And that feels to me like an antonym to real journalism. Mm-hmm. So I, there's lots of things he has produced that worry me a lot not just because of who he is. And I think that's what you're saying, Phil, right? Let's forget for the moment who this guy is. Let's, let's ask ourselves what he's producing. And a lot of it is really, really awful. Yeah, I'm, so uh, go ahead, Phil. To, to, to do the flip thing that we've talked about yeah. earlier when we were talking about the Supreme Court, right? If, if a Democrat president were in office and were basically totally detached from truth, but were was using that approach to advance interests that I agreed with, I would still be disturbed and concerned about their willingness to sort of toss around, you know, either untru- either intentionally untruths or yeah. by their, you know, mm-hmm. their willingness to sort of be uninformed or detached from facts. That would concern me regardless of which direction the policy were going. But I, I mean, that's I think that's the thing that you have to think about if the the beginning point of that statement is that these sentiments are already there. So what got us to that point where there is now a person who can give voice to those sentiments? I, I mean, I in the end, it comes back to who we are as a people and what got us to a point where we're okay with something happening like that. I'm not okay with it. I think it's hilarious sometimes, mm-hmm. but I'm certainly not okay with it. But that, it, yeah, that's, it's, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I mean, it's, I was going to say, we've talked about partisanship as a powerful drug, right? Yeah, that yeah. that your, your willingness to accept facts is determined on whether or not they line up with your, with your partisan views. And right. that, 
that is an epidemic in society that is highly Dangerous. problematic, yeah. and it comes back yeah. to this again. And I think we've seen evidence of both, in tr- not, not, not partisanship, but you know, I think there are times where Trump knows he's lying. So apparently there was conversation about whether he should use the word spy and whether he should use the term deep state. And he was reluctant to do so, and then over time he became more comfortable doing that. Mm-hmm. And his initial reluctance was because he, he got what that was really going to do. Right. So, you know, I think he's aware of some of those things. That being said, I'm trying to think of the lawyer that quit. I can't remember Trump's lawyer, um, one of the previous guys. Um, Ty Cobb. No, the other guy. There's been so many of them. So, So one of them came to him at one point. And Trump had said something, and he said, no, no, Mr. President, we had this conversation, you know, the, you said something very different. And Trump apparently told him, like, no, no, that wasn't the case. So I think there, there might be times where Saying he can... Senile? No, no, he can convince himself, right? I mean, <laughs> no, no. If, you're, if you're a used car salesman and you sell this pitch, at times you start to believe your own pitch. Yep. So it's, you know, it could be like two things are true. Like, there, he understands truth, and, and I think historically he's... You know whether it's a Democrat or Republican, he's in another. He's in another. He's playing another game in terms right. of authenticity. Yeah. Uh, he gets some of that. You tell uh, yourself the narrative, a narrative enough times, you're going to believe yeah. it's true because you forget what the truth sure. was at that it's, point. It's hard. It's, yeah. My my theory with with him is is uh, in terms of if I had to interpret his <laughs> detachment from truth, mm-hmm. my theory would be that he is a man who has lived his life without consequences. And so I, I think for the most part. And so the the idea is that, you know, in the past he, you know, he he can say or, you know, allege things and, and he doesn't pay much of a price for it. And so I don't I see that largely as the issue in, in this in these sorts of situations. He's he's giving a speech and, and the idea of, you know, um, you know, whatever, embellishing something or telling something that's slightly different. Uh, that's just the way life works for him. Yeah. That's how you do it. He has it to is. live in that White House with no gold-plated toilets <laughs> in some <laughs> shitty room where the where a bunch of other people have lived. Those are real consequences. <laughs> Lincoln. It, it seems to me, though, and I hate to not uh, end with a smile here on this, that uh, something you said earlier feels really important about uh, what happens next, and that is the litmus test for adulthood is the capacity to identify mm-hmm. values and apply them on both sides of this political equation. And I think we're moving away from that, which which That's makes true. me think to myself, what's it going to look like when the next president comes along? Mm-hmm. Yes. We're yes. probably not going to see somebody who has the personality quirks that this one does. But we become so partisan that we can't identify common uh, values that, that animate the way we think about issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so I just want I, I, we picked point. so many nits earlier yeah. I just want to endorse no, no, another no, no. thing you said my, no, I, my friend I know that we're going way long and I, maybe we have to cut a topic but but I, not I, the I art topic we're not cutting it Barker I want to tie this back to what you know last week we talked about Venezuela and we've talked about other countries with this sort of shift towards authoritarianism and, and that is one of the hallmarks right the, yeah. the, the ability to sort of create your own truth right yes. that and and that is where you know we are not there but this is another one of those red flags in which yeah. if if you are willing to believe whatever someone says because they are on your side of mm-hmm. the fight then that man that's that's scary yeah mm-hmm. in, in some ways this connects to our next topic so we're uh, talking about trump's legal strategy crazy nick or crazy like a fox so every time I turn on the news and see Rudy Giuliani <laughs> doing another interview, I ask myself, what in the world is this lunatic doing? He's going to land Trump in jail. Uh, for example, this weekend, during an interview with CNN, 
Giuliani announced that the Russian investigation will ultimately be left up to public opinion, stating, quote, because eventually the decision here is going to be impeach, not impeach. Uh, if I'm the president, I don't want my lawyer talking about impeachment. Uh, yet it does appear that Trump's legal strategy has shifted from the courtroom to the court of public opinion. Trump's escalating attacks on the FBI, DOJ, and special counsel mark a significant departure from the more accommodating stance he maintained under the guidance of his former legal team. Does this strike you, gentlemen, as a sound legal strategy? Tom, let's start, start with you. <laughs> well, I'm going to go right back to McCoy. And, and say, I suspect Trump is telling Giuliani how to create the narrative, mm -hmm. and I suspect Giuliani is acting, uh, acting exactly the way Phil wants a lawyer to act for their client. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if, Trump, if Trump says go on TV and say something outrageous, Giuliani's on the TV saying something outrageous. Uh, the second thing I'd say is, uh, I think the more aggressive strategy is paying off. Mm -hmm. um, public sentiment seems to be changing a little bit on, on this uh, investigation. I think there's a weariness not wariness, but weariness mm -hmm. with uh, a, a year and a half, well, not a year and a half, 14 months or mm -hmm. whatever it is, and zero indictments that have any meaning. Uh, and and I'd, I'd go back to these, these ones that we've got with Flynn and Manafort to process indictments. Now, I think a more aggressive posture, if I was the defendant here, and, and Trump is in every meaningful sense of the word a defendant, I'd want to turn the, the attack dogs loose. Yeah. And it seems like I, it's working. Yeah. Phil. Yeah. I mean, I think I don't know if it's a sound legal strategy, but I think that I, he's Giuliani's not wrong in that mm -hmm. impeachment is not really. I mean, it, it's, mm -hmm. it's a political process more than a legal process. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if if you can t swing public opinion so that Republicans are afraid to get on board with a, with an impeachment, um, yeah, it seems like it's not necessarily an awful strategy. I think the the question is, to what extent does that because because it's a political question, you have to take into account November and what's going to happen yes. in the elections. Yeah. And so, mm -hmm. if the Trump attack on all of the FBI and DOJ and all of that inhibits the ability of the Republicans to defend seats, then it becomes a problematic political strategy. But um, I, I, you know, I think the danger that they have is playing to the base, right? I, I think the people who who watch Fox News every day are sold, right? And they're yeah. going to, the diehard Republicans are never going to impeach. But the question is whether it's a proper political strategy in a larger sense. Mm -hmm. See, to me, that's that's a really important point because so the the New York Times is this daily podcast, and so yesterday they were looking back to the Clinton impeachment, and the parallels between the strategy that Clinton took and what Trump is doing right now were striking, huh. and, and what the Democrats were thinking was, or I'm sorry, since a Democrat, what the Clinton team was thinking is that there's no way we're going to lose impeachment if we make this a partisan issue. So let's hammer that what. Uh, I can't think of the prosecutor. Ken Starr. Ken Starr. What Ken Starr is doing is he's attacking Democrats. He's This is a partisan issue. And it worked, right? So ultimately he was impeached, but when it got to the Senate, there weren't the numbers. And and they're saying that, that the new lawyer for Trump who worked with Clinton is using a very similar strategy. Make this about partisanship. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, whatever the facts are don't really matter because this is a partisan dynamic that is playing out. You're going to be safe. Uh so it, I think it is a really effective strategy. It doesn't get us to truth or what really happened, but truth is has no part. Has, <laughs> it should play no part in any of this. No, I, uh, I, I still wonder how much. 
I guess my question is, I, I don't doubt that that strategy hits home with the Fox News demographic, right? With, mm-hmm. the, with the Republican base, the core base, I think this is highly effective. What I don't, un, and, I, and I know that it's totally ineffective with the MSNBC, like the yeah. Democratic base. The question is, how is it playing with those you know, centrist kind of swing voters and how is that going to play out? And I don't have a good sense for that. No. That's that's where, you know, it all comes. That's what it all comes down to. In I'm going to tell you right now, like it, it's hmm, the length of the special counsel and the investigation is it, I, for me personally. And I would imagine a lot of people that are in similar political positions. It's it's just it's taking too long. Like I I understand the complexity of it and what you're trying to do, but there there is this weird creep of doubt that there is something to this that is political. Yeah. That it's there's a significant amount of doubt that's being fed into this narrative now that gives credence to what they are saying. And if you don't know any better, that's a very powerful narrative to have. If you can make this political and say that they're continually just trying to hamper our efforts and we're trying to do something for you and you know they clearly don't have any evidence look how long it's taking and if that timeline increases to the point where it bumps up into the 2018 elections it seems very likely that that is a a truthful statement mm-hmm. I, go ahead what? no i don't mean to cut you off no i, I, I don't hear you say I mean, the, to me, this is where the whole, <laughs> I, I don't, you know, we've talked about the parties as being sort of hostages of the people and mm-hmm. how in some ways in a pure democratic sense, that's the way they should be. But I, this is where I, I would love to see more people who are informed about the process or aware of what's going on in the process, people who have been briefed about the Mueller investigation. I would love to see both Republicans and Democrats yep. coming out and saying, hey, this is a long process, right? This is a massive investigation Agreed. into mm-hmm. like, be patient. But it's not this is where the politicians, because they're afraid of voters, are playing the party lines instead of actually talking about the issue of whether this is taking too long or not. It seems like an issue that we can talk about factually, right? Is this is this process normal? Is this to be expected? Should it be going longer? But we're not talking about the actual facts of the investigation. What did I tell you and about what, talking about facts, Phil? I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> what I'm sorry. Uh, all right. Let me just take another side here. Uh, uh, the first thing I think that it's important to say here is uh, with nothing yet revealed after all of these months, uh, if, if I'm Trump, I'm going to press hard. O.J. Simpson won his case mm-hmm. in large measure by pressing for his speedy trial rights. He knew he could outspend the, def- uh, the prosecution, and he knew the faster he got to trial with a team of superstar lawyers, I'm not saying Giuliani's a superstar lawyer, but the faster he got there and the greater the degree of pressure he put on that side, the better off he'd be. And I think somebody's saying in the White House, listen, start pushing this guy and create a narrative that he's got nothing or he'd do something. And I'm not sure that's not a bad idea Mm -hmm. as a legal matter. Uh, Because listen, anytime a lawyer sees the other side has weakness, that's when the gas pedal goes down. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Hit him hard with discovery, hit him hard with uh, motions, hit him hard with public uh, uh, opinion. Uh, I I don't underestimate that. Yeah. The second minor thing is, can we just say out loud, there has not been yet 
any evidence of a crime or misdemeanor. Mm-hmm. Impeachment is different then. And Lawrence Tribe said this recently, and, and uh, there's a guy that's got bona fide left credentials, mm-hmm. right? You better not rush into impeaching this guy, because if you lose, uh, it, it's going to be bad on you. Yes, sing it, sister. And, and, and I'm not sure I see a, a plausible argument yet for crimes and misdemeanors. Mm-hmm. He's, it can't just be obstruction of justice, don't you think? It's got to be more than that. I mean, if you're going after the president, there has but to be something. If, if, if there's obstruction of justice, at least you've got a crime or a misdemeanor. It's not clear there's that. Sure. Yeah. But let's assume there is for the moment. Uh, the evidence is thin. Mm-hmm. The facts uh, are not clear. Uh, and, and it seems to me, if you get a November election, the House flips, the House impeaches. Uh, boy, oh boy, the very people that elected uh, Trump this time. You want to talk about an enraged base? Wow. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, real quick, I know we got to move on, but to if we go back to Clinton and then think about Nixon, there's a great story to close here. Yeah. That's why we have to move on. <laughs> yeah, that's right. He's right. Well said too. Yeah. So, so going into the midterms, the second midterms for Clinton, the impeachment is playing out. Republicans thought they were going to slam Clinton, and he did exactly what you said, mm-hmm. and Republicans picked up seats. Uh, so, and I think if you go back to Nixon. Uh, the reason that Nixon ultimately was facing impeachment is because there were enough Republicans who were willing to peel off. So all of this is it's a it's a legal game, but it's also a political game as well. Mm-hmm. So I, I want to I think your point, Tom, is fantastic about how if you're a lawyer, you push really hard. But I feel like this is a little different than the O.J. Simpson case, because it, the, the analogy would be if someone was found murdered and the police were doing this long investigation and then oj simpson came out and was like you gotta hurry up and get this done (laughs) because the investigation the Mueller investigation is about russian interference it's not necessarily about trump so trump's like rush to get this taken care of is a is sort of a weird thing in this situation he has not been accused of a crime yet so to say you've got to hurry up and finish this investigation is i don't in some ways a little it's, it's a little different or it's a little telling. But one of the constitutional issues about this investigation of the president is he is different than everybody else in America in that he has to conduct the affairs of state. And so the question is, uh, can you indict the president and keep him from doing that? And I think at some levels what people are saying is if this investigation hampers the ability of the president to do his job, mm-hmm. and let's all say out loud, it could be the other way around. Uh, do we really want president after president uh, investigated, hampered, harassed, and kept from doing uh, the duties of, uh, of state? I see uh, we have screens here so I can see Phil laughing. But here's a principle. Do we want the president to be able to do his or her job or don't we? Mm-hmm. And I think that's the argument he's making. Maybe not artfully, but what he ought to be saying is, listen to me. I've got uh, constitutional powers I have to discharge here. And you've spent my entire presidency investigating, leaking to the press. Can we just say out loud that this whole thing starts because Jim Comey gives his friend at Columbia Law School, uh, you know, a packet of documents. And I need to conduct the affairs of state. Mm-hmm. Now, I've just said that better than anybody in the Trump administration has. Right. But, but that matters, doesn't You're hired. it? The, the reason I was I was laughing is that your point is totally valid, but I also am drawn back to the case we talked about earlier in which you could argue about the police going up and looking under the tarp. Are we really wanting to hamper the police's ability to do their job? Are we going to want to get in the way of them? They're just trying to do their job. What? I like that. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, let's talk art. All right. <laughs>
<laughs> Our final topic, and I know we're over Nick, but we have oh, to I talk about no, this. That's a good one. So, uh, <laughs> so, all right. So this this is my favorite story of the week. This may be my favorite story of the last couple weeks. Uh, one of Russia's most famous paintings, which depicts the Tsar Ivan the Terrible cradling his dying son, who was uh, badly was badly damaged after a man drank four ounces of vodka and then promptly attacked the painting with a metal pole. The painting portrays a grief-stricken Ivan holding his son after dealing him a mortal blow, a historic event whose accuracy is now being questioned by some Russian nationalists, including Vladimir Putin. These na- yeah, exactly. These nationalists have called in the gallery to remove the offensive painting for years, suggesting that Ivan the Terrible wasn't, in fact, so terrible. Mm. In fact, in 2015, Putin tried to improve the public opinion of Ivan with a popular exhibition whose theme loosely translated as, quote, Ivan the Terrible should really be considered Ivan the Not-So-Bad. That's my favorite part. <laughs> That's <laughs> so, when I want my title. To so, so to summarize... Ivan the Not-So-Bad. So exactly. <laughs> so to summarize, a guy goes on a Russian, goes to a Russian art gallery, drinks some vodka, and then gets so upset at the unjust historical treatment of Ivan the Terrible that he feels necessary to attack a painting with a metal pole. This is both upsetting and impressive. <laughs> If Putin can rewrite the history of Ivan the Terrible, what can't he do? Moreover, it speaks to how the power of history can be used as an ideological tool and how easily the public is swayed by such appeals. Phil, you're nodding your head. You see the value in art, right? I I, I see the value in art. I also, this is just the parallel to lots of the things we've been talking about. The ability of, of, of leadership to to sway the opinions of masses, right? If you if you base your conclusions or your decisions about um, issues on, you know, whether you agree with Vladimir Putin or whether you agree with Donald Trump or Barack Obama, that's that's a bad way to decide whether something is factual or not. It'll make and you it angry. Goes back, I know, and it goes back <laughs> to the thing we've talked about a lot. You know, I, again, I, I'm hesitant to talk about us going down the road towards authoritarianism, but. The, the idea that we are immune to this is the thing that bothers me because throughout history, like as somebody who studies and researches nationalism, this is how, you know, we rewrite our histories all the time. Um, and to assume that we are immune to this is, you know, it's, it's naive. I don't know what the solution is. <laughs> it's just I, that story kind of hits on so many of the, of the ideas and the points that we've talked about over the past few weeks. I, history is a very stubborn thing, and it's not something that most people agree with it when they talk about it. You can talk about history being written by the winners, but at the same time, history is a series of events. And we talked about it a year ago, and you could say the exact same thing about taking down of confeder- uh, confederate yeah. statues and you know not looking at that part, or re- reimagining or rethinking that part of history, whether you agree with that or not and most people don't agree with it but the sentiment that those events shouldn't be part of our shared cultural knowledge and history and it's a very scary thing and it can and my point is that it can happen from either end of the political spectrum absolutely and it's it's really frightening that it seems to be so pervasive not only in places like russia where you just kind of expect something like that to happen but it's it seems to be more and more prevalent here and just this need to be safe and to to have a narrative that fits within your political and 
emotional spectrum is not that's not reality reality is tough and history is shitty history is really really <laughs> shitty there's a lot of terrible people I, this is even the terrible. He was the guy. Right. That was the not so terrible thing. Yeah. The, not know. so it's, terrible. He was the it's he was debate, meh. It's debatable now. He was meh. Um, <laughs> go, now go, <laughs> go ahead. I keep interrupting. I'm sorry. No, please. I want, I want to hear you. No, say. I mean, I, your, your point is valid in that the, these things, you know, history happens. And, and But what we choose to emphasize in history and, and the sort of moral and ethical values that we tie to historical sure. events do change over time, yeah, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, I, and, and so I, I'm not necessarily opposed to a, a rethinking of Ivan the Terrible, right? <laughs> it's the, it's, the, it's the, the rethinking of it that's sort of taken away from fact or that that is right not, it's not it's not that as a society they have sort of reevaluated the things that i have been terrible did and have decided that they're okay with it it's putin saying this and one drunk guy going and attacking him <laughs> but i mean whole, that's but, probably not an isolated incident yes if there's exactly. one rat then you're infested well, right it, if you see one rat you're infested I've that's done, the thing i've done some reading on this guy so this guy went to the art gallery not intending to do this so he was, you know, he vodka is really he saw all the paintings. He had four ounces of vodka, and then he four? said, "Yeah, just four. And he got he got mad. <laughs> okay, <laughs> you know, and that's what caused him to be angry. So I think this this speaks to it, right? I mean, it, 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 you're motivating individuals who might not otherwise be so inclined. Mm-hmm. Mm. Ivan the terrible Tom. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me just suggest one more thing that changes yeah. our conceptions of art. Uh, I have seen Jackson Pollock. And without four ounces of uh, vodka, <laughs> find myself very much in sympathy with the guy that hit this painting with a pipe. <laughs> yes. mm-hmm. Oh, it's I, I don't know. It's a very interesting thing. It's I I don't know the people's ability to either not necessarily agree with something, but to understand something yeah. and learn from it and create a salient response to it seems to be waning in a lot of societies around the world, which is more problematic than anything. That's a great point. And we spend so much time talking about partisanship in the United States and our own perspectives. I think what's going on in Russia is really interesting because mm-hmm. they feel isolated. They feel disconnected. They mm-hmm. they feel they see a different reality, a different dynamic playing out in the world. And I mean, this I think this speaks to it. So mm-hmm. it, it is it is troubling how easily we get manipulated by these. It's, it's a very pretty. It's thing. human nature. What do you mean? Well, I mean, I, I this is so I, I don't want to go down the rabbit hole, but like, <laughs> that, I mean, as you know, having studied, having you know, my, my research de- deals with nationalism a lot, and this is, I mean, human, we want to have a story, and we want to have belong, and we want to have this identity, and I mean, this is how people have behaved for, you know, there's not nothing sort of, un, I don't know that it's necessarily all that new that people are sort of falling back into these nationalist ideas, oh, yeah. and, and and whatnot. It's it's it's. I don't know. I mean, I think that to believe that we're sort of beyond that or or past that is, I think, part of my my warning or my cautious. I, I don't know. I, it's I, interesting. I, I'm only here once a month, and and I think in the last three or four times I've been here, we've talked about how do people know what they know, mm-hmm. what makes them think what they think, and uh, of course, social media has been uh, uh, very much a part of that. I get very angry, and and we're all worried about that. Yeah. and and this is further evidence that people, uh, you know, Vladimir Putin can talk people into uh, Ivan the not so bad. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We are in unique times right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. This was a fun one, gentlemen. Oh, it was yeah. Great. Totally worth going. Long. Yes, we went long. Absolutely. Yeah. 
Um, anything else from everyone? No, We're good. Thing? Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess we'll do shameless Hoping plugs Phil's going to invite me back after we pick nits for... Uh... <laughs> this is it's fantastic. I look forward <laughs> to this fantastic. every time. He, he enjoys fantastic. doing that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, I have no idea what this is going to sound like. Um, I'm not even going to do that. <laughs> I was. Do you want to start the plugs? So <laughs> if you enjoy us, follow us on Facebook and Twitter and uh, you know, share us with your friends. And I'm sure... What else, Nick? The, the Spreaker, the Blueberry, the... <laughs> Yes. Um, so, uh, big thing. If you're like a, if you're a brewery or something like that that you know wants to share your stuff on the podcast, we're you know happy to try your stuff and you know review it and you know talk to you guys. Uh, find us on Untapped. Um, we do all the reviews on there. Uh, iOS and Android. You can download it on there. Um, on top of that, uh, follow us on Facebook at Barstool Politics, Twitter at Barstool Paul. Uh, podcasts you can find on SoundCloud uh, and Stitcher and Google Play Music and all major podcasting platforms except um, Spotify because they suck. Um, <laughs> on top of that, uh, iTunes. Uh, it sounds like most of you guys are listening on there, so share us and review us and like us on there. We appreciate that a lot. Um, I think that covered everything, That's good. right? Yeah. Tom, thanks again. We always love having you in. It's fun. Absolutely love being here. <laughs> we'll see you again in a month, apparently. <laughs> Phil, anything from you? Nope. Nope. Bill, good. Cheers. Awesome. <laughs> Bye, guys. Bye. Bye.